Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Whistling in Dark podcast. Uh, this is episode 17. I'm Patrick Bradley, your host, down in Atlanta, Georgia. And today is Sunday, August 19th. 2018. <clears throat> so today I wanted to talk about um, two basic topics, and then you know we'll follow those wherever they uh, wherever they go, um, and maybe a little bit of news, um, not as much probably as usual. Uh, I'm just not really feeling it today, um, and I've been wanting to do more um, topical podcasts. You know, maybe a little bit like deeper dive or whatever. Anyway, um, I mean, I guess it's, this first one's still related to an article I saw. Uh, I think it was actually at the top of Hacker News um, all day, one day this week. And um, if you guys aren't familiar with what I'm talking about when I say Hacker News, there is a group called Y Combinator. And it's like a startup accelerator kind of thing out in um, Silicon Valley. Anyway, they post or, or they have uh, uh, news. I think it's news.ycombinator.com. And it kind of functions like a subreddit, but, you know, it's the only one. Uh, it's basically kind of focused on techie type news, but uh, it it's more like the people on it are, you know, tend to be uh, programmers and you know, people in that industry. Uh, and the topics, I think, are just kind of like whatever those people find interesting. Um, not necessarily all topics about technology, but there's a lot. I mean, there's lots of articles about new versions of a language just came out and, you know, really uh, stuff that, you know, unless you're in that industry, would be pretty boring. But stuff like this comes across as well. Um, so, uh I want to talk about that, which was uh, NYU in New York has says it's going to make tuition free for all medical students. Uh, so I want to talk about that. And also, you know, in relation or, um, you know, also talk about uh, what's going on in, you know, with tuition in the United States and, um, you know, with all this really cheap money from the uh, federal student loan programs and, you know, basically giving all this cheap money to people that are pretty poor students um, and how, you know, um, that's, you know, driven up the, the cost of uh, college universities, you know, really, really high. Um, so I want to talk about that. And I wanted to talk, um, this isn't, there wasn't anything specific this week. I just have been kind of thinking about it for a while. Uh, I was, I wanted to talk about the tulip mania, uh, bubble. So this is something that was back in the 1600s in Holland. And, uh, so, you know, uh, not exactly a uh, hot hot news topic for today, um, but it's something. It's it's one of those that you hear referred to, 
you know, over and over and over, you know, oh, this is just like tulip mania, tulip mania, you know, and particularly if you are a person that has been interested in Bitcoin uh, and cryptocurrencies and stuff, uh, you, I mean, it's it's almost unavoidable, you know, um, the uh, the comparisons that people will make between um, Bitcoin and uh, this sort of tulip mania bubble burst episode. Um, and it's also, I guess it's, you know, historically interesting. I, it may be the earliest sort of boom and bust that uh, is really documented. Um, I mean, it's in the 1600s. I mean, there were some pretty established economies before that. So, I mean, I, that is that does seem surprising, but um, I don't know. I, it's what I see... Uh, <laughs> written a lot and uh, I'm no expert on like you know ancient Greece uh, economics or you know China or whatever um, so anyway uh, it, it's certainly uh, an early um, you know example of this so I wanted to talk about that and you know um, you maybe make some comparisons with Bitcoin and see what we think um, and, uh, yeah, and then some news. There's been some, uh, which I, I have not, like, read at all. I just saw when I was getting ready to start um, that there's some uh, <clears throat> big uh, a report came out. Um, Pennsylvania report details decades of sexual abuse uh, by priests. Apparently they named, like, 300 Roman Catholic priests. So that's pretty intense. Um, I would, so I'm, I'm definitely going to, you know, kind of like read through that a little bit and talk about it. And, uh, you know, that, that's another topic. Uh, this, this, I, you know, this topic of, of sexual abuse of children, pedophilia, um, certainly we've heard about it a lot in, um, you know, in the Catholic Church, uh, but I think the reality is, is it's not limited, you know, at all to that. And um, I am definitely not prepared to talk about the general topic today. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know how sort of really educated or how s strongly I feel uh, because you, you really run into. Uh, conspiracy theory land pretty quick when you start talking about really wealthy people and abusing children um, like they're you know these child abduction rings and MK Ultra and you know all this stuff and um, Pizzagate or whatever and uh, but this is you know related um, at least you know in the conspiracy theory people's eyes, you know, this is just uh, like one of the big ones that has really gotten exposed. Um, but I, I don't know. Anyway, you know, it's it's pretty bananas, you know, when you read. I mean, you look at like the scale of of this one thing. Uh, but anyway, we'll look at that. I don't. I actually don't really know what happened. Um, so I'll try to get through those articles in. Um, or at least that one article in a relatively entertaining, quick way. All right, so 
Starting with the NYU makes tuition free for all medical students. Let's just read a teensy bit here. New York University will offer a scholarship that covers tuition to every new, current, and future medical student. It said Thursday, new, current, okay. So anybody currently enrolled and everybody from here forward. All students enrolled in the MD degree program are eligible regardless of their financial need or academic performance. The scholarship covers the full cost of tuition, which this year amounts to $55,000 and $55,018. The NYU School of Medicine is the first top 10 ranked medical school to make tuition free, the school said. There are currently 442 students enrolled, including the 102 new students entering the fall semester. They learned they would be receiving the scholarship at Thursday's white coat ceremony, which marks the beginning of their careers in medicine. The cost of medical school can keep some people from pursuing a career in that field. Addressing this affordability, addressing the affordability issue could help alleviate physician shortages, said Rafael Rivera, Associate Dean for Missions and Financial Aid. About 75,000 or about 75% of medical students across the country graduated with debt in 2017. They owed an average amount of 191,000 according to the survey of the so the survey by the Association of American Medical Colleges. Uh, so I think you know pretty much get the idea there. Um, so sounds cool, right? On the surface, um, private company deciding to waive costs for something i don't know you know lower <laughs> lowering costs to zero um you know uh i mean it would be kind of weird if like your grocery store said oh man you know we want people to eat healthier so you know we're gonna charge uh you know regular price to everybody um but if you buy you know apples they're free like we're just gonna give you we're just gonna give you apples uh because we want people to eat healthy but you know everything else is uh regular price and um also remember that everything else has risen in price uh, the last like 10 or 20 years by like at a, you know, an insane amount. Um, that, that's kind of the situation you're looking at. So, um, you know, I think the, uh, the thing to me that's odd is it, I mean, they're going to get like flooded with students, <laughs> Apply. I don't know. I mean, it's a really odd thing. I mean, it's like, okay, so this is like a top 10 school. So it's already a very good school. And I mean, they are going to get absolutely bombarded with applications, right? Like, if the, I mean, the number nine school presumably is going to cost 50 or $60,000 a year and NYU is free. Uh, I mean, that's going to be everybody's first choice. I mean, and I, I mean, I don't know what kind of scholarships medical schools give out. Maybe, I mean, maybe they do, uh, 
you know, so maybe like the really good students will get scholarships um, and then <laughs> everybody's just going to try to get in NYU. Um, anyway, I mean, that that's going to be uh, interesting. And also, you know, so like they're not a charity. They've got to make money. So, you know, just like the like the grocery store, I mean, the sale of oranges and everything else better cover the costs of giving away all those free apples, um, you know, and you can control. I mean, one thing I can promise you is like Kroger would or wherever, whatever your grocery store is in Atlanta, we have Kroger, some others. Um, I can promise you it's going to be really, really hard to find apples in the grocery store that's giving them away for free. <laughs> uh, the instant they're in there, people are just going to load up their carts and may, you know, maybe they'll say, Oh, only like four apples per customer. I mean, still like every single customer is going to get four and maybe, you know, uh, a husband and wife are going shopping together. Maybe they'll just check out separately and they'll each get four free apples, you know, and so now they've eight. I mean, you know, the, it, that is definitely what's going to happen. And there's absolutely no mystery, which is, I guess, the same thing as like all, you know, uh, let's say they got 400 applications, you know, uh, last year. They'll probably get like 4,000 this year. I mean, unless a bunch of other schools follow suit. Um, but I don't know what like the financials are of other schools. I mean, can they just like afford to uh, give... <laughs> you know, millions of dollars away. Um, they probably can, but, you know, would they want to do it in medical? I mean, is that then going to be the thing? Is then all students are going to, you know, I mean, all universities are just going to follow suit uh, because nobody's applying anymore. And they're, you know, or it's just going to seem weird. They, you know, if Columbia, I, I guess Columbia has probably has a medical school. So Columbia is charging like 55000 and NYU is free and, and you're, you know, on the same island. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if it would have that kind of pressure or if it would work, but it would be interesting if it kind of had that effect that now like all these doctors or whatever, you know, now all of a sudden it's free to go to medical school. I mean... I don't know, you know, you can have a big foot. I mean, it's it's just like, ah, uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not like a super expert on, on the uh, healthcare industry and the economics of it in the United States, but it is a really, really heavily regulated market and massive interference you know, from the government, and there has been for a long, long time. And this is just like one more, you know, uh, if, if, if this spread and, you know, all tuitions were free for medical students, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not even sure what it would do to the market, but I mean, it would certainly be weird and it wasn't, wouldn't be like natural. I mean, I promise you it would be a giant talent suck from a bunch of other uh, industries you know, you're going to go like that, you know, maybe somebody was going to be a biologist, but, you know, fuck spending $50,000 a year to be a biologist or whatever it would be. I'm going to, you know, and then get my Ph.D. All it's, you know, I'm just going to go to med school, man. It's free. I'll make more money. 
uh, anyway, so <laughs> that's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess it's like a little bit of note. I mean, a little bit that I do know about the uh, healthcare industry is, and I don't know if it goes back before this, um, but you know, and this this is a lot I've pulled from from Peter Schiff and probably some like Tom Woods and a little bit of reading. I've I've never done a ton of reading on the economics of like healthcare in the United States, um, but you know. I mean, one one question, uh, you know, Peter Schiff asked. Peter Schiff asked is why why do you think that you expect your employer to pay your health insurance, but not your car insurance, or not your life insurance, or not your homeowner's insurance, or you know whatever insurance you know you have? Um, why this one thing? Um, and his uh, art or his his claim is that this dates back to I believe World War II times, when um, so there was a uh, big you know like a lot of the male, I guess before World War II you know most of the the workforce in the United States was male. During World War II, you had a lot of them, you know that workforce was depleted. Um, and so the price you had to pay for labor uh, went way, way, you know, was went way up. Like the market sort of demanded that because the supply of labor went down. So the cost of labor, which is like your salary, your paycheck, went up. Uh, so the government, uh, the federal government interfered, you know, and regulated in different ways. At first, I believe they put a cap on wages. I'm not exactly sure how that was. It seems like a really complicated cap since there's all different wages, you know, in all different industries. But the idea was there, you know, you were capped. You, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to pay more cash. Uh, and just to, you know, this was to protect, I guess, the employers from going bankrupt or something. And, um, and, but then they started to, but then they allowed you to pay other benefits. And one of the, you know, benefits that you could pay was health insurance and it was tax deductible. So that, you know, that little bit started, you know, the uh, warping of, you know, the health insurance industry, at least, which, you know, I think just snowballed and snowballed, you know, more and more, more regulation. You know, now we have, you know, this Obamacare thing, um, you know, like, like, you know, I heard somebody talking about the other day, you know, like you go to the hospital, right? Uh, I mean, um, just like imagine being in the hospital, like, hey, uh, how much is this going to cost? I mean, nobody could probably even answer that question. Nobody has any clue. Like, uh, that is so far from how the free market would function in that. Like, you know, it, it, it it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Like how far it's, you know, it's gone. Um, but, uh, you know, where it's like, yeah, I got car insurance, but if I take my car to the mechanic, you know, he's calling me before he does the work to tell me how much it's going to cost. 
and make sure I want to do it. You know what I mean? And not just giving me like, oh, we gave you a thousand dollar oil change because fuck you. I don't know. You probably have car insurance from, you know, your uh, your employer and it probably pays for uh, oil changes. Right. Like, no, because car insurance is like I'm, I'm sure that's like a weird regulated market too that's not like purely free market but obviously it's closer to what a free market insurance industry should look like uh without a bunch of government interference that um you know what's insurance for what you know what is car insurance for or or it's it's not for maintenance, right? Like you don't you don't bill your insurance, you know, you don't make an insurance claim, you know, when when uh, you know, you get your car washed or your oil changed or whatever. It's for it's supposed to be there for big things. I mean, mainly for accidents, you know, and, and particularly for like liability coverage and stuff, right? That's the like real real big thing, you know? The idea is You know, you can afford to buy your car, you can afford to maintain it, you know, but you just you're willing to pay some extra money per month. So you're not bankrupt if you crash into somebody and it's your fault and you like put them, you know, in the hospital or something or kill them or, you know, whatever. Um, It's that's like what insurance is for, you know, that's the role insurance plays in the market. And, you know, that's why it's like a nice thing they, like insurance isn't like these, this terrible, awful thing. In fact, you know, it's uh, it fucking helps you at your worst, you know, times. Um, and and there is still some remnants of that in our economy today you know i have renter's insurance uh, my house was broken into and you know a couple thousand dollars of stuff was stolen and like you know i got all new stuff i got you know they they paid me it was totally easy you know it was uh i'm a progressive it was like no problem at all you know and I, it's not it was just super easy um you know and that to me like that's what it's for right like my renter's insurance isn't like to pay uh i don't know because i want to like you know re re caulk some windows or something anyway but that's what health insurance is you know nowadays that's what you know it's like you get a cold and you're supposed to like go to the doctors and every single thing is expected to be covered by health insurance. And then like every single thing is like absurdly expensive. It doesn't make any sense. So now the the thing that I can't really do justice is the whole process of how like a Tylenol in the hospital becomes like a hundred bucks when you can get a bottle of a hundred of them for like five bucks at CVS. Uh, I actually don't, I've never really sat down and gone through like the intricacies or just, just, you know, where, um, you know, where's the, uh, where's the, like the balance sort of, uh, removed, you know, the, the economy sort of normally has this kind of, uh, sort of natural, uh, you know, cost, uh, benefit sort of, uh, balancing that that occurs and um, you know like for instance for instance in uh, in banking right it should be that 
as you lend out your money, you have less money to lend out. So you raise interest rates because there's less money, you know, supply and demand. Um, somehow uh, in like medical care in the United States and certainly is related to health insurance stuff, this is severely out of whack. And there's somehow this is like artificially removed and, um, you know, there there's some way that these that these insurance companies or these hospitals are able to get at like you know really really easy money with no con uh consequences um yeah so you would uh like there's some moral hazard uh you know in there somewhere and generally you know you can um you know you can find that or, you know, when you see sort of some part of the market like severely out of whack, you assume there's some sort of, you know, moral hazard uh, where um, there's just that sort of natural uh, balance is, you know, that is in the free market, you know, like with the interest rates or whatever, um, you know, that that's just. That's just been removed. And, um, <clears throat> you know, and from the Austrian perspective, I mean, anytime there's a moral hazard, you know, you, the government is involved. Uh, because if you are sort of letting property rights determine stuff, um, there's just always real property at risk. I mean, it's, it's always real, you know, like people aren't, you know, making something that has you know no value have value by government decree um so anyway uh you know so that is uh you know the the health insurance thing or whatever and then you know this sort of moral hazard idea is very clearly played out in uh tuitions in the United States. Um, I just pulled up an article from the U.S. News and World Report. Um, this was from September, almost a year ago. See, 20 years of tuition growth at national universities. Uh, college gets more expensive every year in addition to high tuition pri prices paying for housing food transportation books and other school related fees can add thousands of dollars to college expenses. To cut costs and limit student debt, many families choose to send teens to in-state institutions, but data from the past 20 years show that the average cost of tuition and fees from private and public national universities has risen significantly since the late 90s for both in-state and out-of-state students. Uh, they have a chart below um, the three reported by the 300-ranked national universities included in the recently released uh, best college rankings. Um, okay, here's a couple of highlights. Maybe this will be good enough. I don't know if to delve really deeply into it. The average tuition and fees at private national un universities, private national universities. I don't know. I, I think the national universities is um, just the name of this set of 300 universities that they thought were the best. Uh I don't know why. I mean, 
why would like Princeton University be considered a national university? Uh, it's just a private university. So I think, and it's capitalized the word national. So I definitely think it's like a name of the group that they're referring to re reviewing. Um, but I don't think it means anything about them having some national scope. Okay, so the average tuition and fees for private uh, universities has jumped 157% in 20 years. Um, and I actually did a little math before. If you had a steady... Uh, actually, that was just... Oh, no, no. I, yeah, I'll have to, actually, I'll have to go back. Because if you had a 5% increase... I read somewhere else that it was like 5% uh, year over year, every year for the last 10 years, which led to a little over like a 60%, um, you know, total increase. Uh, so 150% is actually way more than that. Um, so really out, way out, uh, outstripping inflation. Out-of-state tuition and fees at public universities has risen 194%. In-state tuition and fees at public universities has grown the most, increasing 237%. So the cheapest, the so, you know, um, and, you know, in Pennsylvania, it'd be Penn State. Uh, that, you know, it's way cheaper. You know, I, I actually went to uh, Drexel University and got my bachelor's in physics from there. And it's one of my, you know, regrets um, as far as academically. I mean, I had a I had a good time, met, you know, tons of great people. Some still in my life today. Um, and in that, you know, in that sense, I definitely don't regret it. But, you know, from a financial and an academic choice, it was stupid. And I started in... 2000, I think. I went to community college a couple of years. Um, so that's like early on in in this study. And it was expensive then. But it was something like 25 grand a year. Actually, it was even like 25 a semester. And it was actually like three semesters equal two. So I, I think you actually wound up closer to like seven. That ah, can't be right. Well, let's just say it was 20... Anyway, long and short, it was about 10 times more expensive than if I went to Penn State. And um, if you are not aware, Penn State is a far superior school for physics as well. Um, so, you know, Penn State's like probably cracking the top 20 uh, physics schools in the country. Or is like Drexel will be lucky to be in the top 100. Um, so anyway... Uh, I spent a bunch a bunch of money that I didn't have to to get a worse education. Um, but right. So that's like where, you you know, you're trying to send your, you know, the, save your money. Like if we had any clue, we just went to Penn State. But this sort of kind of shows that kind of, um, you know, rent. Right. We were not well versed in financial matters, you know, not wealthy family at all, definitely are going to have to pay for this through loans. And, you know, I looked at the loans as like, it was hard to even consider it like real money, you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard, uh, you know, it's, um, it's kind of weird to 
to say, you know, to think of now. I mean, it's such a ridiculous decision. I mean, such a horrible, horrible decision. And I mean, part of me, I, one piece of it is I don't think I knew uh, how much better Penn State was. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a poor marketing job of Penn State. But, you know, I don't know how much budget there is to market to, you know, undergraduate physics students. Um, but anyway, so, you know, just massive increases. Uh, it's kind of funny that the most government of all of these, these three, so you have private, you have public in, uh, public out of state and public in state. So the most government controlled would be the public in state, like supposed to be super subsidized. That's increased the most, uh, not the least. I mean, it's so like, and this is, you know, this is the kind of stuff you see whenever you actually take, stop and look and don't just take like Huffington Post's word for it or the way that they spin and select like certain numbers to make something look good. This is like the reality, you know, government is just insanely wasteful and creates moral hazards and in no way is, has some like, you know, I mean, I think that like, you know, they uh, <clears throat> make fun of like, you know, religious people for believing in God. I mean, I think that, you know, people that are like real statists, you know, whether they're socialists or communists or just like this sort of welfare socialist person or whatever, you know, I think that they treat the state like God. Like it's like actually this omnipotent thing, you know, and it it's nearly the opposite. I mean, it just. You know, it's it's really neither. It's just a collection of people all out for their own gain. And but now you've given them some like, you know, special power uh, that not that like laws don't necessarily apply to them. So they can steal, you know, they don't you know, they can they can do violence against, you know, groups of people or target certain people. And there's like no consequences. There's no repercussions. And so, you know, you see crazy stuff like this, like this is build, you know, I, I this is a little bit before I was like cognizant. I mean, <clears throat> I don't remember, you know, a time before student loans. Um, my promise that it was sold is like the, you know, make America great again in the eighties or whatever, like, ah, oh, we got to get, uh, we're, we're losing to the Chinese we're losing to the Japanese, Japanese, I think it was the big in the eighties, you know, and, uh, we've got to get our kids, you know, we got to get more kids getting college degrees. So they do this. I mean, it's fucking stupid. And it just saddles people with debt, massive debt. And it flooded, you know, put a bunch of people in college. I guarantee it's watered down the degrees. You know what I mean? Like, you wind up with like $100,000 of debt. And uh, I don't know, you know, you got some like, I don't know, fucking communications degree or business degree or something like and now you got to pay that back now you got like a small mortgage but no house you know uh they're just gonna carry around for like 20 30 years and you gotta pay it and then they pass the special laws that you can't declare bank like you can declare bankruptcy but you can't get rid of this debt so like how i mean like 
How like insidious is that? Like, like what a like diabolical plan, <laughs> you know? Like, let's fucking take like these super uneducated, vulnerable. I mean, like by definition, they're eighteen. They're seventeen and eighteen years old. I mean, hopefully, their you know parents are are like help you know to guide them. But obviously, they get you know fooled uh, too, and um. You know, and like ultimately, like parents love their kids, but like they're not on the hook for that hundred thousand dollars. You know, that that's the kid's debt, and uh, so it's probably easier to sign off on than if it was their own debt. They would look at it differently. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, well, this is my child's first adult decision they're gonna have to make, and you know, an education is like you, you want an education, and there's no other way to get it because now the prices have gone up so high. Like only very wealthy people are gonna be able to send their children to school and just pay for it out of pocket. You know, I mean, we're talking $25,000 like 20 years ago, right? hundred, I mean, so that's, it's going to be over 60 grand a year. Who's got an extra 60 grand every single year laying around? Not I. Uh, <laughs> I don't have kids, so don't really matter. But, and I, you know, and I do okay. You know, I'm a single guy. I, I'm a software developer. Uh, you know, like I'm doing okay. If I had a kid, I mean, I wouldn't be able to pay, you know, out of pocket to go to some, you know, really fancy school. Uh, really expensive school or whatever. Anyway, so um, so I'm bringing that up. So uh, NYU, I guess, is a private university. So we'll say that they're probably around the average that they've increased their prices almost 160 percent in the last 20 years and i can promise you that their costs have not increased 160 percent over that same time period so i mean maybe that's why they're getting the uh the money to just give free medical school Right? They probably couldn't have done this 20 years ago. But now they're able to just jack up tuition and jack up tuition because there's a, this is like, this is a moral hazard. Like, th this is a problem that these children have access to all this cheap money with no like concept of really what it is. And they just funnel it into universities who like, they just can keep raising the rates because. What's it matter if it's $50,000 a year or $60,000 a year? Like, am I really going to, like, not choose to go to NYU because of that difference? You don't, like, people don't even think about it because they're paying for it with, like, funny money. You know, it's not even real. It's not real until they graduate and then the bills come. And then they got to pay, like, a grand every single month for the next 30 years of their life. They got that albatross around their neck you know and there's so many people with that now so while great do whatever you want you know but the reason that you have this money to give free education is because all these other poor saps are subsidizing you or subsidizing these medical students 
because they're getting these these do these crazy student loans and you're just jacking up your price for everything else is more expensive so back to the grocery store what they did was in the the decade before they gave away free apples they increased the price of everything in the store 160 percent and then they turn around and they say, oh, look at how charitable we are. We didn't give away some free apples. But those oranges still cost 160% more than they did. And up until that day that they give them away for free, they had been selling the apples for 160% more. You know? So, I don't know, man. It's just like, you know, it's, it, you know, it's like the healthcare, uh, you know, industry in the United States. I mean, it's just, it's like shit piled on shit, just like this shitty snowball of complexity of regulations um, that, you know, there's probably, you know, it's probably not a moral hazard. It's just, you know, it's moral hazards just feeding into other moral hazards, you know, um, like defense contractors, right? Like there's no sensible, there's no grounding for that, right? Like you want to, charge you know 10 million dollars for this tomahawk missile like okay and then next year they could be like eh we want 20 million for it okay whatever like it's not our fucking money it's nobody you know it's like sort of the taxpayers money but they don't even cover the whole bill we'll just fucking print up the difference we'll sell you know we'll sell bonds <laughs> Make it somebody else's body. It's like nobody's individual life is affected. In fact, the people that are making the decision are going to get like extremely wealthy. So what do they care if, you know, the country's in a poor financial, poorer financial condition in 25 years because of like what they did, you know, and they're just doing what the pieces of trash, you know, that was in office before or the deep state, you know, they're just hanging around for like 20 straight years doing it the whole time and just, you know, getting all these, I don't know, uh, you know, Dave Smith was talking on his last episode. He's like, I don't know if these guys in the media are in on it or they're just like useful idiots. Um, you know, and I don't think it really matters. Like either way, you know, like whether these politicians are are just like in on the take and they're just horrible people from Jump Street or they're just like useful idiots that somehow get like convinced that they're going to do something good or different. Um, I feel like it's probably the former that they're in on the take that, that, you know, they, they chose this career because they saw that like their particular set of skills could allow them to be successful. And if you're able to be successful in there, you can sort of wield all this influence that can lead you to be a very wealthy person. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at with that. Uh, not, I don't know. I mean, all in all, I got pretty bad vibes over that. Um, so the, uh, the next thing I want to talk about was this tulip, uh, tulip mania. I actually got to look around where I have some article about it. Um, 
So there's uh, wiki.mises.org. So you can, uh, there's like a Wikipedia, but that's just, you know, on mises.org. It looks like Wikipedia. It's a wiki. Uh, here's their thing about tulip mania. So, um, you know, it's like I was saying, uh, so this, I get the price peaked for tulips in January 1637. Um, so I guess this was in Holland, probably mainly. Uh, and... Um, You will hear this referred to a lot in recent years. I've certainly heard uh, comparisons between Bitcoin and the tulip mania. And, you know, mainly it's just uh, I would say the popular take on tulip mania or these just manias in general is it is like speculation gone out of control. So, you know. Um, you know, prices start to go up and, nor you know, normally there's some sort of peak thing and people start to sell, but sometimes you can kind of like somehow get past this and, uh, you know, they, there's no actual like explanation for it. It's just supposed to be, well, it's just something that happens in the market. You know, sometimes like, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, you, you buy a tulip today for $10, you know, and it's worth $15 tomorrow, you know, and it's $20 the next day, um, you know, and it, it's like you want to sell it, but then you're like, oh, shit, but I could hold it, you know, and third day it's 25 and you're like, man, I should buy more of these, you know, and other people pile in. And so, you know, I mean, on, on, this, on the surface, it, you know, it makes sense, Um but the little bit I know from like technical trading, I mean, as and most of the tech like technical analysis that I've done is all in cryptocurrency. So this is supposed to be like the ultra ultimate mania, you know. Um, but the uh, what you see is, I mean, when when a run starts going, you know, and, and a price starts, you know, going up and this can happen in like across any time scale. I mean, it can be in minutes, you know, hours, days, like you, you can see like this pattern, you know, of, or whatever, like on a run starts happening. It's like a day after day after day, like the price of Bitcoin is up, is up, is up. You can like you you know you you sort of like look at like these different indicators and you just see it's like man this is like oversold you know or whatever I mean you just you know that like the dip is coming now you don't know when a dip is coming but it's like it it's it just like the the more it kind of increases like the bigger the dip is going to be it's it's just I mean there's no there's no market that's like just infinitely up, right? Like, uh, I, I mean, there's no perfectly like positive sloped market from like now until the end of time. And, uh, you know, just like these just various like, indicators kind of like let you know and everybody's looking at the same stuff, you know. So <clears throat> to me, without like some sort of like government kind of regulation 
interference, something like artificial happening, it, you know, it's eventually, you know, there, there's going to be dips. It's just going to happen. Um, and when you see something like you're totally insane, you know, you got to wonder, you got to say, I mean, is there a moral hazard? Um, so anyway, so the, this, uh, the you know the I'm not sure really how deep the the real analysis goes because I, I feel like it's generally just there to show that these booms and busts are just a natural part of the it's like a problem with the human psyche like we just get all lathered up as a group and just everybody will like try to you know to get on the uh, the latest trend and you know, it's always gonna you're gonna end in in disaster and and if like the government doesn't protect us you know it'll destroy the economy so um douglas french wrote a book i believe he wrote it in the early 90s so he was uh, i believe a student of rothbard and i think he came out of a master's thesis or something so he wrote um he wrote a book I would actually like to bring up this specifically his book. Um, ah, I'll just do a search real quick. Douglas French Tulip Mania. Um, yeah, early. It's called uh, Early Speculative Bubbles and Increases in the Money Supply. Uh, or increases in the supply of money. Um, you may even be able to get this. Look at this, guys. I'll uh, I'll give this out. Look, I'll go on. Uh, I'll give this out. Uh, I'll put this link on um, on the Facebook page, and I will put it in the show notes. Um, so if anybody wants to read. Uh, it would be a good read. So he actually talks about three different, um, three different, uh, bubbles here. And, uh, this is a little summary of his book. The housing bubble was hardly the first in human history. Oh, this is a little bit. So he originally wrote it in 92. Uh, I think they must have rewritten this uh, after like 2008. Um, this book is the first and only book to solve the mystery of the most famous bubble in world history, Tulip Mania in the 17th century Netherlands. It is a legendary event, but explanations have been lacking. People blame irrational exuberance free markets, and an unleashed aristocracy. Uh, he also, ah, man, where is it? He also does something, it's about the Mississippi. Yeah, the author not only examines the Mississippi bubble, but also the life and monetary theories of its architect, John Law. Um, and there was even a, one other. But anyway, he, does, he talks about three sort of older, yeah, these early speculative bubbles. Um, so if we look, uh, at just kind of like a quick view, so, um, it's a little, it's, it's actually like pretty confusing. And, and I mean, I, I wouldn't, 
I, I'm still like not a hundred percent comfortable that I'm I'm like grasping this, um, uh, but you'll you'll see in a second. So normally when we talk about increases in the money supply, we're talking about the Fed printing money, right? Um, and so the money is not. It has no, you know, commodity backing it. It's not gold backed or anything else. And so the central bank and the Fed isn't special, right? The Bank of England, whatever, Zimbabwe will print, you know, hundreds of trillions, Venezuela, you know. Um, so they, you know, print all this money. This drives up prices. So they increase the money supply. Prices increase. Businesses believe incorrectly that demand has that real demand for their product has increased so in order to meet this new demand they invest in expanding their businesses eventually the money supply stops increasing and you know the music stops and there's not enough chairs and there's a bunch of bankruptcies because a bunch of businesses overextended to meet this uh, you know, phantom demand that actually was just from paper printing. You know, it was just from fiat increased money supply. Um, so that's that's like the usual thing that you're seeing. And um, you can go back, you know, the Great Depression, there was a double, uh, the money supply doubled in the 20s. So you get the roaring 20s, right? Everybody thinks, oh, my God, business is great. And then they uh, actually shrink the money supply and you have depression falls. And then there's, you know, some other details as well. They really kept it going because it doesn't need to last that long. But um, so that's, you know, an early one. Obviously, you know, uh, also another way that our, you know, Federal Reserve increases the money supply is by lowering interest rates. Lowering interest rates has uh, the same effect. So, you know, we've had very, very low interest rates for a while, and they're slowly trying to bring them up in the re recent year or two. Um, but this one is a little bit different. Tulip mania. So, what was happening around the country, or around Europe, was a lot of the other sort of uh, a lot of the other kings and I guess queens or whatever were you know they controlled money printing and issuance of of currency in their in their respective countries and almost I guess across the board. They were debasing these currencies. So generally back then, you know, gold and silver and I guess maybe also some copper would have been um, mainly what was used as currency. So like the king would just say it would start to debase it like, I don't, you know, I don't know, just they called it sweating or clipping or I don't know what whatever it was they were sort of decreeing that it had the same value but in reality there was like less gold or silver in it uh, and you know <clears throat> you can force your citizens to use it but you know the rest of the world knows what's up and but you know in Europe kind of every country was doing it uh, except Holland. So um, the bank of Am I guess the bank of Amsterdam was the bank then before and well after too. So the bank of Amsterdam was 
not doing this. They actually had like legit money. And I, so what was happening, um, basically what, what they eventually did, I forget what they were like in, this is a part I was a little confused on. So they were like issuing their currency, but most, I think at, at that time, um, you know, Amsterdam was, I think, like the center of the, you know, uh, commerce world, uh, cer certainly in, in Europe. Um, and so there was tons of like different currencies and stuff flowing over around and not so much was just uh, was their own um, currency. And I think what they're saying is like since their currency was legit, like one ounce of gold was one ounce of gold or whatever, people were basically just taking it and melting it down in the bullion. And then I guess like basically getting free extra money by converting it into like some other country's currency, which was debased. Um, pretty weird. I don't totally know what was going on, but they were kind of having an exodus of, of current, uh, Precious metals. So they had something called free coinage. And so they would allow like anybody basically to come and uh, and they oh, I think what they did is they I think they said they're no like they now will control all. Uh, maybe I can find a specific line here. Uh So throughout the 17th century, precious metals from the New World, Japan, and other locales have been channeled into Europe with corresponding price increases. Okay, so first of all, a lot of, like Japan and America and other places, their uh, precious metals were coming into Europe. So that was, so, I mean, you know, again, like money, it, it's not really this mysterious other thing operating in the economy. It's just, a, it's another commodity, you know, um, and it's affected by supply and demand. So if there's a bunch of precious metal coming into Europe, particularly back then, right? Because it was like, it's not, it's not like you can just wire, you know, money around the world. I mean, like if money was in Europe, I mean, it took, it took a while to like spread around into other economies. Um, as kings throughout Europe debased their currencies, the Dutch provided a sound money policy, mon money policy with money backed 100% by specie. The effects of free coinage combined with the stability of the Bank of Amsterdam created the impetus that channeled the large amounts of precious metals being discovered in the Americas and to a lesser degree in Japan towards Amsterdam. The Japanese silver mining industry was also expanding at the same time. And the Dutch East India Company, you guys should probably know what that is. I believe that was the first publicly traded company in the world, uh, had a virtual monopoly on trade with Japan from 1624 to 1853. So this, so all, yeah. So like, I guess Japan was like starting to really mine silver and the Dutch East India Company had a monopoly on that trade. So uh, from 1624 to 1853, the Dutch were the only Europeans permitted to trade with Japan, managing to obtain about one half of the total exports of the precious metals. Under the stimulus of free coinage, an immense quantity of precious metals found their way into Holland and a rise in prices ensued, which one form of expression in the curious 
mania of buying tulips at prices often exceeding that of the ground which they were grown. Free coinage laws created more money from the increased supply of coin and bullion than that than what the market demanded. Ironically, its acute increase in the supply of money fostered an atmosphere that was ripe for the speculation and malinvestment and led to one of the first recorded panics or speculative bubbles. So, um, basically, there was an increase, you know, like before, increase in money supply. But, I, I mean, the way that I'm reading this, is that, that it is interesting, is that it's the increase in money supply was legit. I mean, it was gold and uh, silver, so uh, it sort of shows that, you know, I, I mean, I guess like the idea is that in general, you know, having a situation like that with gold and silver as your, uh, you know, as your money um, and, you know, inflating enough. Remember, so gold inflates, right? Like inflation. So this is a Mises guy, right? This is an Austrian. So when, when an Austrian economist talks about inflation, if they don't specify that they're saying that they're talking about price inflation and they just say inflation, they are talking about the money supply itself. Now, when you hear the CPI or anything on the news, anybody outside of like the Austrian school talking about inflation, they are talking about specifically price inflation. They're talking about price increases and then, you know, they, you know, for whatever reason, right? Like they don't even have to mention that it's an increase in money supply that's like behind that. But so anyway, you have this um, kind of the normal case increase in money supply leads to a boom, eventually to a bust. The, I find the very kind of unique, interesting thing is that in this case, the increase in money supply was gold. And um, I think the, uh, you know, I still think that even though you had this boom and bust while gold was on the watch, like on gold's watch, uh, while, while gold was the, you know, legit um, money, um, I think it's still okay, right? Like we're talking about once in the history of the earth did like the environment come together just right. Like it took all these different factors. It took a monopoly agreement with Japan at the time when they were, you know, greatly expanding their silver exports so half of that came in it took a bunch of uh it took the discovery of america <laughs> and then all the you know all the precious metals coming to europe from there and then it took all of the other sort of uh uh ruling aristocracies to sort of be debasing their currencies to then cause all of the uh, or, or just you know a large large portion of the precious metals to flood into Amsterdam 
It took all this stuff to happen at once. And it also had to happen in a time where movement was slow, like money, uh, you know, the, the technologies for moving money around were very, very slow by today's standards. You know, to have some sort of buildup like this now uh, is is just, you know, far less likely. And especially to like, you know, really, really change the... Uh, you know, the landscape of prices, I mean, with gold and silver specifically, specifically gold and silver, you know, not, I mean, obviously other money, this can happen all, you know, at the, at the whim of the rulers of the central banks, right? Like they're like the aristocracies, except right now they have like total control of, uh, you know, of the world's banks and issue and the, you know, the privilege of issuing currencies. Um, so uh, I also wanted to say, you know, I, I think this idea, you know, uh, and Dave Smith mentioned this with something else. Um, damn it. He was talking about something that Ron Paul was saying back, like when he was running in 2008 and it was, it was just like, damn, like that's, you know, that's a pretty crazy, you know, that I was like eye opening. People hadn't heard that. Well, now, you know, uh, anyway, Bob is thinking like the idea of like people, gold is money, gold is money. Well, I think, you know, when you say that today, like people are now glaze over, right? They still don't get it. They never got it. They never tried to understand what people were talking about. Um, but, you know, it, I, I wanted to say this, right? Like, so. I do not know how you get around this right now. Um, there's a reason that gold is not money in the United States, right? Like I, I or silver, right? Like I own it. I don't fucking transact with it. You know, I don't buy anything with it. The only thing I ever bought with a silver coin was a class taught by uh, Badnarik. He ran for libertarian presidential candidate. I don't remember what year. Uh, yeah, I don't remember what year it was. 2004, maybe. Um, and he would only accept uh, silver. It cost one ounce of silver. And he would only accept payment in that. And uh, that's it. That's the only thing in my entire life I've ever purchased with silver. Um, so I think by any real, you know, any reasonable account for me today, silver is not money. Gold is not money. But why is that? Right. It's because you're fucking taxed on it. That's why, like there's capital gains tax and it's the same reason to, well, all right, so Bitcoin is not proven. Gold is proven. People will use gold and silver as money. If if they got rid of capital gains tax on gold and silver, now that would be putting it into a special class because there's tax on capital gains on oil and various other things, and maybe people would want to use oil as currency. But get rid of all the capital gains tax. People are going to start fucking using gold and silver as money. Right, like immediately, that's what people are gonna want. If you don't get taxed for it, you know, 
then then like it's so you know you have there's a there's an app uh I think I have it on my phone. Peter Schiff used to put it, uh, push it. I think it's just, I think it's just called gold money. Um, but you can get, uh, yeah, like you can get a gold. Um, so it's the world's gold savings and payments network. So, you know, it's like, you can get a, you can get like a card, I think. I mean, you could, you, you could get a, a gold, like debit card, fucking tie it to your Apple Pay. Do whatever you want, right? Like you, you can do that today. Like today, like you could just buy or put money, you know, put gold into that account, and it's accessible through your debit card. But like, who is gonna, you know? But like, I mean, the taxes, the tax implicate the complexity of that. Every every transaction you do with gold is a taxable event right now. Um, and obviously, like, I'm opposed to that, right? I'm just saying the reality of it, the reality of it today. And this is, like, so rarely talked about with cryptocurrency. And I feel like it is, like, the if you're not talking about that, then you don't actually trade cryptocurrency <laughs> because... Every fucking thing you do with it is a taxable event. Every trade. You buy Bitcoin and then you buy, let's say, Ethereum with that Bitcoin, taxable event. What was Bitcoin worth if you bought Bitcoin at 5000 and then when you bought Ethereum, it was worth 10000 If you, let's say you bought one Bitcoin, right, for $5,000, then you sold, you bought a one Bitcoin of Ethereum whatever x number of months later and at that time bitcoin was worth ten thousand dollars you got to pay a five thousand dollar capital gains tax now doesn't matter what you do with that ethereum that's what's supposed to happen so like it ain't gonna be used as money nobody's paying i mean what's i don't even know what capital gains i think it go it, it sort of slides also with your you know income or whatever um, but I mean, it's at least like 15%. I mean, it's, so it's just a fucking like 15% and it's like up and down, you know, like it, it's so complicated. I mean, can you, can you imagine if every single purchase you made throughout the year, you had to track and then use to calculate your taxes in April? I mean, be fucking insane. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, to me, like, I don't know how you get around that. Like, the, the only way to, like, get around it is to use currency that is totally untrackable, that you're able to buy goods, like, entirely on a black market. Um, so I need to be able to, like, like, you know, maybe Monero would be a candidate for that. I think Monero, Dash, in uh, Zcash... I think are the anonymous ones. I'm not sure what other ones are there. And I'm, I'm not remotely in the debate of which one of those is legit or they all are or none are. But let's just say for argument's sake that you can actually protect your anonymity with let's just use Monero. Uh, because I believe that Monero is the one that's picked up some popularity in the like kind of drug market. Um, I would assume for this reason. So... 
Yeah, right? Like, drug dealers aren't paying capital gains tax on their Monero. Um, I mean, I guess unless they cash out, I, you know, I don't know, but they have to launder it and stuff. So they get hit with, like, other, you know what I mean? You get, it would, it would have to be, like, an entire functioning economy. Otherwise, like, let's say, uh, you know, for whatever reason, um, they, they, like, a black market formed for, uh, well, let's just stick with apples. Just for a reason, a bunch of people were growing apples and they were willing to sell them for Monero. And you could get Monero on the sly, easily, untracked. So then you could use Monero as currency. It would be only to buy your apples. So that one sort of little chunk of your own personal expenditures could be done with Monero as the currency, totally tax-free. Okay, great. But, you know, you you need like a full black market. I mean, unless, unless I'm missing something here. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I managed to only buy... Uh, cryptocurrency, aside from a very small, a very small amount um, that I sold and bought like a bunch of crazy little altcoins in 2017. So I didn't have to deal with uh, taxes. But this year, I bought and sold a ton. Um, and I, you know, l- luckily, there's some I think there's some programs out there that make it pretty easy, you know, uh, whatever that you can like kind of it will download and your your history and then crunch the numbers for you and sort of spit out the results that you can use. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, it's still like crazy, though. Right. Like <laughs> um, and I only like bought and sold like other crypto, you know, just moved around all over. But that's the point, right? Even moving around just in cryptocurrencies is is you know uh, taxable events. So um, Bitcoin's actually gone way down this year. So uh, the maybe the government's going to wind up subsidizing <laughs> some of my losses. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, anyway, I mean, I think I think I made the point pretty well. I mean, I think it's like pretty clear that like cryptocurrency has this same albatross around its neck of capital gains tax that gold does and silver does. And those are the reasons that they're not like, you know, currency. Um, it doesn't really matter, right? If I mean, if they were, the government could print all the dollars it w- it wanted, um, but you would just go buy gold with it that day, right? Like if your employer paid you in in dollars, uh, you know, you just go get gold that day. Like there's no penalty for getting gold anymore. There's no capital gains, like you know. Uh, I mean, whether or not, you know, you think that there's ultimately going to be some like, you know, outrageous hyperinflation um, event. uh, The price inflation is still really, really bad. You know, Um, let's say, uh, you know, if it's if it's two percent a year. um. 
that would be, you know, all right. I mean, I'm 40 years old, right? So 2% a year, even not compounding it is 80%, right? So it's, you know, it's devalued by, and that's not even compounded. I, I don't, you know, I would have to, uh, Um, so, uh, yeah, if I think I did this right, um, over 40 years, uh, compounded, uh, 2% interest compounded annually, uh, winds up with, uh, 200 and, uh, around 217%. Uh, increase in um, prices if that was your you know if that was your price uh, inflation <clears throat> rate so if that whole time you could have had gold you know I mean you you know you you uh, you save yourself two percent like compounded annually that and that's just like you know if gold is like absolutely tracking um, I think that, I mean, what was the gold, you know, here, let's look at a uh, gold price in uh, 1977. What was the gold price in 72? Uh, that's so funny. So over 200 years, historical annual gold prices. So this is onlygold.com. Uh, they're like quoting, um, oh, wow. Oh, man. Right. Because there was the, we went off the gold standard. Uh, so, well, in 74, looking at $183. And, um, where are we at? Where are we at here? Uh, so by 77, 1977, it was $160. So if you were, you know, buying gold then and right, what is it now? It's like 1300 bucks, 1200 bucks, something like that. You know, that's like almost fucking thousand percent. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what do you want? What do you want to get paid in fucking gold or dollars? Um, but that's obviously why they had to do that, right? Like they they want, you know, they need that power, they need that control, and so you know they're gonna fucking like not let you use uh, gold. They're gonna fucking penalize you for it. So, so that's how that that's how that goes. Um, yeah. So that that's uh, a little aside I wanted to say about Bitcoin, um, and I really. Uh, as much as I think it's a cool technology and um, not necessarily or, or I'm generally kind of not into like the Peter Schiff vibe. He's super anti Bitcoin, um, but I'm also not like a super raw, raw Bitcoin person, even though I've put uh, a good chunk of my own money in into crypto in general. Um, I. Uh, I really see this is like I just don't see a way around this, uh, but I don't see a way around it with gold either. Um, 
So I don't really know what, you know, what to do. I look at, you know, basically what I'm saying is, sure, you can invest in gold. And I guess you could invest in Bitcoin. Um, gold just sits around as a store of value. Bitcoin, if, you know, if what I'm saying is correct, it's, you know, unless like governments collapse or something or this entirely black market sort of shows up. I don't I just don't see how it's going to become um, really used regularly uh, as as money. You know, they, they had things like I remember you could they started having websites that would accept it. There was a whole big run on that. Like, uh, I, like I remember you could even sign up. For, you could like pay your monthly OK Cupid subscription. You know, with Bitcoin. Well, why would you do that now? Means you hit now you're gonna have to pay capital gains tax on. You know, I mean, in Bitcoin that it could go up substantially. I mean, last year. You started, let's say you started a year at a thousand, you ended the year like eighteen thousand, you know, eighteen times. Like <laughs> yeah, like it's gonna, you know, I mean I realize your open okay, Cupid uh subscription isn't that much, but you know, fuck. I mean uh, I guess the idea is you also made eighteen times all of your Bitcoin, so maybe it kind of comes out in the wash, but I don't I don't know. I don't think so. And, uh, you know, I don't think you just want to be taking that hit on it. Um, so kind of a kind of a downer, I guess. Um, but I do not necessarily think it is like, right, like, you know, the idea that like Bitcoin is this tulip mania thing. Like actually the government is uh, the Fed has actually increased interest rates. Um, and, you know, we talked about this before. I think I haven't even shared an article about this that I that I actually wrote. Um, a, I don't know, like five years ago or something. It was like one of like three things I wrote on Tumblr um, back when it was first kind of going. And um, but basically, you know, ha uh, Hayek was was like pretty important in explaining how um, monetary policy caused these booms and busts, how, you know, uh, like this kind of, you know, fiat money and Keynesianism or whatever. I mean, it kind of predated that, but, um, you know, accounted for these booms and busts. And when you print a bunch of money and increase the money supply, like you're going to have malinvestment. But he, there was a couple of things that, you know, there, there's some subtleties to that point that I feel like you don't hear a lot. And those subtleties are that um, it's not just an increase of money supply. There's a couple of other factors that, um, you know, need to also be occurring. One of them, it needs to be an increase in the money supply that is unexpected, that, you know, the, the economy at large can't just be expecting 2% inflation, then getting 2% inflation. That's not going to cause, according to Hayek, Right. Like Peter Schiff may disagree, but if he disagrees, he's disagreeing with Hayek, the, the lone Nobel Prize winner out of the Austrian, uh, you know, economist. And I'm pretty sure he would be disagreeing with Mises or Rothbard, you know, anybody that like actually, you know, studies this stuff. 
Um, but yeah, so the idea is it's not just increase in money supply, it's an increase in, in uh, money supply that is unexpected. And um, so a steady inflation rate doesn't really get the job done. You actually need to have an increasing, uh, an increase in the uh, inflation rate. And I'm talking, um, well, they, they would be talking actual money supply uh, increase. So, so you, if, if the Federal Reserve is lowering interest rates right now, I'm not getting how we're running into a new bubble. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure unless there's other methods of inflation. Um, but I'm, my understanding is that the biggest, uh, you know, knob that they that the that the Fed has to change the money supply is the interest rates. So um, they've definitely increased slightly, but increase is increase, you know. And so maybe they're doing other, like I think they talk about open market activities or whatever, but uh, I don't get it. I mean, I really don't. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that we're definitely not like running up to the next, you know, big bust because uh, there's still a bunch of crazy debt and, uh, you know, I mean, they did lower, I mean, Maybe we're, we're even paying the price of some of the stuff that happened right after the collapse. Because right after the collapse, there was massive inflation, right? Like government bailouts, federal bail, uh, Fed bailouts on the order of trillions of dollars. They dropped the interest rates, you know. So I this could be what's happening is that was the real, that was where all the malinvestment occurred. Um, when basically you're supposed to be cleaning up the fucking mess from the previous bubble that just burst, but instead they just jacked everybody back up. And so that malinvestment, like the, the bankruptcies didn't happen the way they should have to sort of clear out that malinvestment. And now you sort of have these like almost like zombie companies or something that are running off all this sort of free money that was given out in late 2008, early 2009, maybe 2010. So maybe that's where all the malinvestment occurred. And now that they're increasing interest rates, they're trying to do it so slowly. But eventually, right, like the music's going to stop, right? The musical chairs and it normally they just go whoop and pull the you know needle off the record. But it's like as if they're like they've unplugged the record player. They're letting it sort of slowly slow down but eventually the music is stop and no matter how many ways you try to stop this music no matter how slow you do it there's just not enough fucking chairs for everybody and there's going to be a bunch of bankruptcies so maybe that's how it makes sense uh, maybe that's you know the, the 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 sort of boom you almost didn't even notice it because it was like a boom inside of a deflating previous bubble that was like still there um so it just didn't allow the correct uh kind of market corrections and adjustments that should have happened or you know businesses to go bankrupt and everything i guess maybe i just talked myself back into it uh so this could be a pretty weird one man like if we are like 
if, if they're coming on the heels of each other like that and they really just never even got to unwind all the malinvestment from the previous one and you know uh, and and I'm not I don't know much about this but I mean you may even have never really unwound all the malinvestment from like the dot com uh bubble bursting so so that's uh that's kind of where we're at there but I I think that so I that's just a point uh, like I don't hear made very often well definitely the thing about like interest rates changing and not being known and basically meaning that the rate of inflation needs to change in a kind of hidden kind of way so i mean that i think is very subtle and it's also pretty like technical so i'm not surprised that though the world is not you know discussing that or that that sort of level of subtlety is missed um you know, they're ignoring genocides in the Middle East. So I think they may ignore the subtlety of, of Hayek's argument or not appreciate it. Um, but the other thing about capital gains and why gold isn't money and why Bitcoin, it, I'm not sure that it's going to be money, is a point that I think about a lot and I, I don't recall reading it anywhere. Um so maybe you heard it here first, but be wary, friends, because uh, as much as I don't like fiat money, it is it is money right now, and gold is not money. In a natural free market, gold would be money, you know. But in a natural free market, you know, a Tylenol in emergency room wouldn't cost a hundred bucks. But we ain't in a natural free market, and we've got to live in this one. So Tylenol does cost a hundred bucks, and if you don't have health insurance, you got to pay that out of pocket, and then you got to pay all the other fucking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to do whatever. Doesn't matter if it's wrong. Doesn't matter if it's immoral, right? It's immoral that they're charged capital gains for trying to use gold as money. But the reality is, it is, and you know we can. We can try to protest it or do something about it or, you know, try to spread the word or, you know, elect people, you know, beg our fucking overlords to stop doing that. But um, up until, you know, 9.42 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday, August 19th, they are still doing it. So that is where we stand today with that. And uh, I promised to talk a little bit about this one last article uh, about this Pennsylvania report detailing decades of sexual abuse by priests. Uh, so we're just going to talk about it real quick. Um, I'm like 90 minutes in at this point. Uh, Harrisburg, PA, Roman Catholic priests in Pennsylvania sexually abused thousands of children over a 70-year period and silenced victims through the quote-unquote weaponization of faith. And a systematic cover-up campaign by their bishops, the state attorney general said on Tuesday, an 884-page report made public by the Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro after a two-year investigation contained graphic examples of children being groomed and sexually abused by clergymen. It was largely based on documents from secret archives kept by the diocese, including handwritten confessions by priests. It was 
child sexual abuse, including rape committed by grown men, priests against children, Shapiro told a press conference. Representatives of the six Pennsylvania dioceses included in the report could not be reached for comment. I mean, think about this is fucking Pennsylvania. You know, thousands of children in one state. I mean, I guess there's more Catholics there than probably most states, but... The attorney general said it was the most comprehensive report on Catholic clergy sex abuse in American history nearly two decades after an expose of widespread abuse and cover-up in Boston that rocked the Roman Catholic Church. Several of the diocese issued statements apologizing to victims and saying they were taking steps to ensure any criminal behavior was stopped. The grand jury has challenged us as a Catholic diocese to put victims first and to continue to improve ways to protect children and youth. Bishop Lawrence Persico of the Erie Diocese he said in a statement as accusers wept as accusers wept behind him Shapiro described the alleged abuse by priests in six of the state's eight dioceses including a group of Pittsburgh clergymen accused of ordering an altar boy to strip naked and pose as Christ on the cross while they photographed him this pattern of abuse deny and cover up the pattern was abuse, deny, and cover-up, Shapiro said, adding that church officials sought to keep abuse allegations quiet long enough so they could no longer be prosecuted under Pennsylvania's statute of limitations. Priests were raping little boys and girls. They hid it all for decades. The report cited 301 priests, some of who have died. Only two of the priests are still subject to prosecution. Wow, only two. Holy shit, man. Oh, my God. A few of the clergymen accused in the report su succeeded in having their names redacted. And Shapiro said he would argue uh, in September 26th court for making all the names public. Wow. The grand jury identified about 1,000 victims. He believed there could be many more. Shapiro said one priest had molested five sisters in one family. He said the diocese settled with the family after requiring a confidentiality agreement. Wow, man, this is so fucked up, man. I never, I mean, I knew, I know that it was really bad. Children were taught that this abuse was not only normal, that it was holy. Uh... In recent months, Pope Francis accepted a number of resignations from Chilean bishops in a sex abuse scandal that has rocked that country. Theodore McCarrick, a former Archbishop of Washington, resigned as cardinal last month after accusations surfaced that he abused a 16-year-old boy decades ago. Well, these motherfuckers are doing it on the order of thousands. Um, man. Well, that is absolutely bananas. I mean, requiring a confidentiality agreement. I mean, where, you know, I don't know, man, let that sink in. You know, I, I was actually talking to some friends of mine. I recently listened to some interesting podcasts about child abuse rings and everything. And, you know, there's that guy, Eddie Sav, I think his name's Eddie Saville in London. I mean, he was like, buddy buddy with the queen of england you know he he was like uh dick clark in england this dude's super famous 
you know, was knighted. It would eat Christmas dinner with the Queen of England. Uh, apparently, they think he molested 500 kids. He would do fundraisers for hospitals for um, children with disabilities and stuff and then, like, rape the kids and, like, really insane stuff. Like, have sex with, like, dead bodies and stuff. And uh, apparently all this stuff came out. But, like, the investigation didn't come, didn't start until he died. He died and then all this stuff came out. And it's like, whew. You know, it's like this. Fucking 301 priests and... 299 of them are either dead or beyond the statute of limitations. And then this comes out. That's fucking crazy, man. Well, uh, on that beautiful note, we will wrap things up. Um, I guess I could take a little teensy-weensy little little uh, peek. There was one uh, anti-war.com. So they picked up this article... Uh, that I've seen actually shared around uh, that a U.S. supply, a bomb that killed scores of children in Yemen was U.S. supplied. Uh, you know, not surprising that we supplied it. Uh, interesting thing is I actually saw a liberal friend of mine share this. So maybe they're starting to crawl out from under their rocks and... Uh, be opposed to genocide and murdering children and families, innocent people, even though, you know, they aren't white. So I guess it's good. I guess it's good that they're sharing it. But I mean, you like... If you haven't fucking, if you're now starting to share anti-war shit and you didn't share one goddamn article in the last eight years because fucking your Lord and Savior Barack Obama was at the head of the fucking murder machine, I don't know, man, like, we got to talk, you know, like... Because you're just going to vote in another fucking mass murderer like you wanted. I'm sure you voted for Hillary. She's a fucking mass murderer, you know? And now you're against this guy, but you're not against this. Like, you're not. You're a fucking liar. Well, anyway, so there's some news about it. And uh, I guess this is the first news that, I, honestly, I think that this is probably the first mainstream news about what's going on in Yemen that has happened. But it's <laughs> like, it's like, oh, man, it was a fucking U.S. bomb. It's like, yeah, we sold them billions of dollars. They weren't, you know, the mainstream news wasn't covering it, but it wasn't a secret. You know, I mean, the cat's been out of the bag for a while. You know, the cat was out of the bag when Obama was in office. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to bounce. So uh, it kind of feels like I gave you two episodes this week. But in reality, it was just uh, one. The previous one earlier this week was so late uh, that it almost ran into this one. So that's all I got. Um, I will uh, talk to you guys soon. Take it easy. Woo. Yo, Pat LaRue is always on a shit. Gripping
if you the type you motherfuckers will get left behind i'm all up on that rapture tip when i get sand fire below is so lit no water for y'all got to 